God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Hebrews. We're going to read from verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to 28. Now, as you find that on your device, your personal Bible, let me just uh, give you a, a heads up. It's, it's helpful, I think, at least for me, to remind you that this Hebrew group of people that he's writing to are the Jews. And though it's not known for certain and probably can't be known for certain, all of the language we read sounds very much like the Apostle Paul. So many people believe that it is probably Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Jewish believers, and I suspect Jewish unbelievers. And this book really lays out God's plan for the people of God, uh, people of the first covenant. And so we begin there with the concept that would be very clear to them and which we will then take into the new covenant as we read from much of Paul's work that is found in the New Testament. So let's read now Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 24. For Christ has earned, uh, excuse me, let me just start over because I said that one word wrong. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed to a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are already waiting for him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's going to be a number of scripture references in today's message. And so if you would like those notes, I recommend that you use the Shiloh app or go home and check your email because I've sent you my notes. And if you're not receiving those for any reason, just reach out to the church use the connection card on your bulletin and say, I would like to receive the emails, the text messages and so forth, and I'm not receiving them and give us an indication of where to send it. And we'll make sure you get copies. There are hard copies of the master that I'm using right now in the office. And if you need them uh, delivered in that way, we can print them off for you and send them to you or hand them to you through the door. So just know that we really want to help you to get the most out of the reach uh, of the church as God's word expressed on earth. So among Christians, there's a lot of different beliefs about the second coming of Jesus. I think we can all agree about that. They probably exist in this room right now and in my online audience for sure, that Jesus is coming again is something that I think most Christians generally believe. And 
if they're credo Christians, that is, if they believe the words of the Apostles' Creed, then they understand that Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead, and that doesn't mean they're fast. <laughs> That's a strange old word that means alive, to judge the living and the dead. And so, for a lot of people, that's an abstract con con bleh, construct. It's something that they believe, but not to the extent that it affects their lives in any particular way. It's sort of a thing that's going to happen someday, but I don't really have any concern about that because I don't think it's ever going to happen to me. Um, some people might be feeling that way about the certain pandemic that's been going around. You know, it's like. Uh, uh, one of those things that always seems to happen to somebody else. But in truth, we are stating at least tacitly that we believe he's coming again. And then there are those who are on the other extreme, and they are so sure that he's coming again and that he's coming in any moment that they're constantly on the lookout for the signs and signals that they've been told to look for. Of course, the danger there is, is that some of them have embraced a, a kind of legend and lore and tradition that doesn't necessarily have its roots in scripture or has become uh, rendered an extreme expectation. And so we have a sort of mythology around Christ's return that the Christians have to contend with. And then for I think the, ma the vast majority of Christians, there's a belief that Christ is coming again, but a sort of desperation about it. Um, we look for his coming again as something that will relieve us from our troubles. That, you know, oh Jesus, if you would come today, then I wouldn't have to deal with the uncertainty I feel about our times. If you would come today, I wouldn't have to face my own death. I wouldn't have to face the loss of my loved ones. If you would come today, I wouldn't have to deal with the, the anxiety I'm feeling right now every day. And I'm not sure that's a healthy way to look at Jesus' second coming either. And again, there are those who are on the other end of the spectrum. So I'm trying to draw you extreme points of view that I'm aware of. And, and there are those who believe that Christianity is the second coming. They believe that Christ's coming again has occurred in the body of the church or the body of Christ, that that is his second coming. And, and forgive me for saying this, but as a, as a person who grew up on the original Star Trek, right, it's the Gene Roddenberry idea of world peace that we would all just recognize that, you know, we're not going to do war no more, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so there's this idea that we live in harmony with each other by, the, by our own will. And as long as I'm on that track, I'll just tell you that as a, as a lifelong fan of the Star Trek various iterations, I've determined that the show would have died a long time ago if they hadn't introduced human depravity back into the mix because there's nothing to write about. There's no, there's no adventure or excitement if there isn't somebody who's bad and if there isn't somebody in a white hat taking on somebody in the black cowboy hat. You know, it's just like, like we have to have a good versus evil struggle in our entertainment or it's just boring. And so the reality is, is that that probably can't be true either. The human solution is not the answer 
to the second coming. In fact, it's pretty evident when you look at scripture, starting with the day of Jesus' ascension. You remember that on the day he ascended, as he was going up into the sky or disappearing into to the, to the realm of, of heaven and the uh, apostles were all standing around watching and the other disciples were there and, and, and they're all just sort of gaping with their mouths hanging open at the disappearance of Jesus. And then these angels show up and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the minute he leaves, the second he leaves, heaven announces to earth, when you see him again, it'll be in the same way. That is the first statement, definitive statement, that he is coming again after his departure. But you know, even Jesus said that, that he would come, that there would be a day of the Lord. Jesus told people, to look for his return. And for the apostles, there was a sense that they were going to witness that in real time, like in their lifespan. They, they really believed that they would see him come back that soon, that, that, he, was just, that he was just going up to heaven to uh, take care of a few things, and then he was going to come back. And, and, and so they had to reckon with that. And the scripture tells us how they changed their tune from this moment in the Acts of the Apostles until the end when John the Apostle is telling us about his vision and his understanding that some things will happen now, some things will happen in the near future, some things will happen in the distant future, or flip that on its end for us and say there were things that happened then, things that have happened nearer to now, things that are happening now and things yet to come. And so knowing God's timeline, as I stated earlier, the Apostle John tells us in the last book of the Bible, he's coming again. And here's what you can expect when he comes. But in the meantime, here's what you should be doing. This is how you get an A-plus on your report card from Jesus. Do you remember the series I did in the summer about the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation? So this is, this is how we approach the second coming of Jesus. The series is called Adventus, and it's just a Latinization of the word for, that we used to use called Advent. And we're actually like two weeks away from the be, actual beginning of Advent as it is on the formal church calendar. And that marks actually the first day of the Christian year. And it has been, as we've talked about already, uh, in previous weeks, a, a sort of countdown to Christmas for most of us. But we're starting in the ancient church tradition of, of Advent, actually starting seven weeks or six weeks out. And um, we're doing this in part to separate our understanding of Advent from the Christmas message. Because Christmas is certainly something worth celebrating and something that even though it probably comes at the wrong time of the year and it, you know, it comes with a lot of human customs and everything, I don't even debate that except to say that, that if we can separate Christmas from Advent, then we understand the real meaning of Advent. Advent is a word that means the coming. It means the arrival. Um, Advent is something that we anticipate. And the church 
early church, back in the days when the apostles were looking for Christ to return at any moment, even in their lifetimes, they anticipated it through a sort of Advent celebration that was associated with celebrating his birth and nothing like our Christmas traditions now, but what they were basically confessing was is that he was prophesied to come the first time and every sign and signal that we were given about his first coming was fulfilled. And his time on earth, he fulfilled every sign and signal that was given. And even in his death, resurrection, and ascension, every sign and signal was fulfilled. Therefore, if he says he's coming again, then every sign and signal will surely be fulfilled and he will come again. So Advent was a season for acknowledging everything that had already happened according to plan and agreeing that everything in the plan would still happen going forward. And so Advent was an act of faith. And the whole purpose of this series then is to increase our faith and to make Advent an act of faith for us in the second coming of Christ. But an appropriate faith and an appropriate understanding of what that second coming means to us. And so that's where we want to go with this. That, that um, for example, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me, by the way. That's what he means there. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of children of God. That's us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, that's us, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. That is as clear a statement about what we're expecting as can be stated. What Paul is saying is, is that once we were sinners separated from God by our sin and a, as we heard in Hebrews, a system of sacrifices were offered throughout the year in order to keep your slate clean with God. But then Jesus came once and for all, wipes your slate clean and it never is soiled again because of him. Jesus covers your sin, and now God does not look upon you and see your sin, but rather sees Christ covering you. He sees his son. He sees his child. And when God looks at you and sees a child of his own, then God has all the blessings in store for his own children that anyone would have for their children. But these are the children of God, so there's no blessing an earthly father or mother could give that could exceed or even come close to the blessings of God the Father. And so we are, we are informed, not only intellectually, but our spirits are informed because they've been born again. And they've been born in the Holy Spirit 
so that our spirits have a, a sort of groaning expectation in them that we can't really understand and we can't really explain. But we feel in us this, this urgency, like the animals that instinctively fly south for the winter, like the fish that instinctively swim upstream to spawn, like, like my dog instinctively protects me even though she's only known me for a little while. She's decided that I'm her master and she's given herself to me to lead her and she's willing to fight for me. These instincts exist in us because we're born again Christian believers. And so in us is this instinct that Paul calls the groaning, this, this urgency about Christ's return. May I be frank with you for just a moment? If dread is what you feel when you anticipate Christ's return, then you may not know enough about Christ's return. You may not have embraced that groaning urgency of the Spirit in you. Because this is nothing to dread. This is nothing less than a relationship with Christ that is like the betrothal of a man and a woman in the Jewish wedding tradition of Jesus' day and the customs established through the Old Covenant. And so, really, from the very beginning of time, God has intended that his son might have a companion for all eternity that would complete the love God feels for his son and that there would be a unity in this and rapture that happens between Christ the son of God and the church who are the adopted children of God. This is why the Apostle Paul says that if a man and a woman, uh, if husbands, and, like in Ephesians, he's not really talking about marriage in the sense that we might be thinking. In Ephesians, he says in chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might be present might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. See, what he's really describing there is not a marriage between a man and a woman in the earthly sense, but the marriage between Christ and the church. And so what he has done as an act of betrothal, as an act of, of you know, how people do these really spectacular showy proposals for marriage, and now they even do this for going to the prom or something, or the sixth grade graduation dance, my gosh. Way to belittle Christ's betrothal of the church, people. His proposal to humanity, starting with the covenant people of the old covenant, but extended to the Gentiles, which means pretty much anybody who will fall in love with this person, Christ the Son. His proposal is this, let me envelop you in my grace, and take away your sin so that you might be a worthy bride and my father might finish the marriage. Christ's second coming is absolutely 
the fulfillment of the betrothal. Scripture tells us, and we're going to really dive into this next week, but Scripture tells us specifically, even in Jesus' own words, he talked about how the, the church needed to be ready for the groom's return because he wouldn't know for sure when that would be, but if you were ready, you'd have your, your, your lamps ready and your wicks trimmed and you'd have your, your, your wedding garment ready and you'd have your little... Uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, hope chest all packed up and ready to go, right? And then, and then he would blow a trumpet, a shofar, and he would shout and his friends would walk with him and they'd be singing and dancing and you'd hear him coming in the streets on his way from his father's house to the bride's house. And she and her friends would be ready and they would meet him at the door, go back to the wedding have the wedding celebration, and then there would be the consummation, and the consummation then makes it permanent. And it was, for all intents and purposes, that Jesus, I, I didn't say that the way I meant to. The, the point is, is that Jesus did, in his death on the cross, the act of creating a covenant, a new covenant, and it's a covenant like a marriage covenant. It's a commitment to a wedding that is yet to come. And so as far as the law is concerned, it's legally binding, and the only way out of that covenant relationship, even though it hasn't been finished yet, is the same way you would get out of any marriage in the form of a divorce. And there'd have to be proper justification for that, but since there's no proper justification for breaking your covenant with Christ, this is why Christ said the only unpardonable sin is to deny the Holy Spirit or to break the covenant relationship with Christ. If you've been born again in the Holy Spirit and somehow you find a way to break that covenant in the Holy Spirit, you're doomed. So having been born again and received this gift of covenant Holy Spirit relationship with your soon-to-be husband, body of Christ, he tells you to be ready for his coming, where he would take you back to his father's house. That's the second coming. Do you see why I said you shouldn't dread this? You should dread that it takes any longer than this. If this is the greatest joy you can imagine to, to, to go and be with your beloved in the place that he's prepared for you, Men, just think about this in, in terms of, this isn't about maleness or femaleness. This isn't about sex. It's about something beyond all of that. It's about a spiritual relationship between the body of Christ, which is a bride, and the spirit of Christ the Son, who is the groom. That's the second coming that we anticipate. And that second coming is something to give us great joy. And the fact that it is preceded by a number of difficult times and circumstances, mainly for people outside the covenant, it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. It just means that most of what we read about in Scripture is wrath from God against people outside the covenant. So let's not worry too much about that as we get ready to do this study together. So how are you going to know that you are within that covenant relationship and that you 
will be able to hear the trumpet blast and the coming of the king, the coming of the groom. Well, after repenting of sin, I'm amazed at how many times I've heard in the last two weeks or so a number of people suggesting that a lot of mainline denominational preachers never preach repentance. Some of you have been listening to me for three years. Have, have I let that go? I don't think so. I think I've covered that one pretty thoroughly. Repentance is the critical element. Repentance is a word that might as well be described as realizing you've been driving the wrong direction for a long time and you're not heading towards the destination that you meant to be going to. Has anybody ever done that? Back in the days before our phones told us to turn left and turn right, and I remember the early days when it told you to turn left and turn right and you were still going the wrong direction, right? You know, back in the old days when we used these things called maps to figure out where we were going, sometimes we had to commit it to memory, watch the traffic, and then start turning and moving around in the direction we meant to go. And then we'd realize at some point that we seemed to be heading south when we thought we'd be heading east by now. Has anyone ever had that experience? I certainly have. Repentance is when you make a decision to get off the highway Take the ramp and the bridge and the other ramp and turn around and go in a different direction so that you can be headed back to where you're supposed to be. That's repentance. Plain and simple. Repentance says, I've been my own God. Even if I've gone to church all my life, even if I've claimed to be a Christian, even if I've said that I love Jesus and I'm saved because he died on the cross for me, if you are your own God... If your life is driven by your will exclusively or primarily, then you're about due for repentance. And so am I. It's about time to turn in a new direction. Now, once you've repented, and I don't know about you, but I can't really see how you can repent and not tell God, I am so sorry that I'm not going the direction that I was supposed to go. I'm so sorry that I did it out of pure willfulness, that I deliberately looked the other way when the road signs and the signals were pointing me back to you. And so repentant, humble submission to the Lord God is the first step, and the second step is to commit your life to his son, to enter into the marriage covenant with his son. Because you understand that the reason you're forgiven is because of his son. The reason that you are no longer guilty of your sin against God, which is to reject God's will, is because of his son. Then you are part of the covenant relationship with the son, and that means that you are among the multitude that will be startled, enthralled, ecstatic when the sound of the trumpet blast comes and the Lord shouts our name. Come, my bride. That's what we are anticipating in the Advent season. And the Holy Spirit is the secret to knowing exactly how it all goes. There's a quote from a, 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 an author, a friend of mine that I really love. 
He says, the Holy Spirit is the bond of love that flows like liquid passion within the communion of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is the bond of love that flows like liquid passion. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, which is the natural outcome, it's the birth or rebirth that comes after entering the covenant with Christ, we are part of that infusion of the liquid passion of God. It's why we care about what God cares about. It's why we love people and creation in a way that we never did before. And we're not even sure because the same groaning that's inside, that same urgency that we feel about the coming of our, of our master and our, our, our groom, its same urgency exists when we see people suffering, when we see people oppressed, when we see each other in our human weakness and we are compelled to love, compassion, and grace that we didn't even know we were capable of. And we find patience in ourselves we didn't know we had. And it all stems from the liquid passion that exists in the triune God and has been now connected to us so that we're part of that. So the second coming we're gonna anticipate over the next few weeks is nothing less than the culmination of the most magnificent love story ever told. And while you're watching the Hallmark romance movies over the next six weeks, every one of them is just a tiny shadow of a glimpse of the greatest love story of all time. And remember that when you're watching it. If you're separated from your loved ones, remember that as you long for them, that second coming, the same urgent love and grief that you feel because of the separation is the way we feel about the second coming. Then there'll be no dread, only joy. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts so that you be glorified through the way that we live our lives as expectant, joyful, betrothed brides. We pray for your namesake. Amen.